بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته The topic today inshallah is on interfaith and the loss of faith loss of faith through interfaith and this is something that many of you may have noticed uh, with interfaith when we look at many elements of the Muslim community, one of the consequences of liberalism is that faith is not seen as something important. Aqeedah and what you believe is not seen as something important. And nothing makes this loss of faith or loss of attention to Aqeedah more clear than when we look on social media. If you may have remembered last year, there was a Christian who was killed by an Israeli sniper, and you see all of this outpouring of dua and prayers. May Allah grant her the highest level of Jannah. And this is something that every Muslim should know. That when someone who is not a Muslim dies, then it's impermissible to pray for their uh, for Allah to forgive them, for Allah to have mercy on them. Uh, this is a well-known um, ruling and hukum in Islam. And but it doesn't end there. You have the same pattern for any well loved celebrity non-muslim has no connection to islam there's no even uh possibility that this person was a muslim and there's oh may allah have mercy on him may allah you know grant him the highest level of jannah al-firdaus you know with the shuhada and the anbiya like this is someone who had no concern for allah no concern for uh the akhirah no concern for you know being muslim nothing but you have this kind of outpouring of love and prayers and it just reaches a level of absurdity when even the enemies of islam people who were actually uh mocking the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam there was this example a few years ago of a cartoonist um, who his whole name to fame was making cartoons against the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and uh, he died in a car accident and and burned to a crisp, and uh, Muslims were some Muslims were saying, "Alhamdulillah, you know, an enemy of Islam has has died and gone to the fire," and you had other Muslims objecting and say, no, no, may Allah have mercy on him. You don't know his final state. Yeah, he, you know, was an enemy of Islam, but you don't know. Maybe in the last moments he changed his opinion. These, going to this extent, this is even an enemy of Islam mocking the Prophet ﷺ, and you have this kind of, uh, you know, husn van. So this is the level of a absurdity and lack of concern for iman and faith and there was one uh, very scary example disturbing example of a group of muslim academics and they were part of this email list um, 10 years ago i still remember this and i was a part of this email list and it had you know over maybe 500 700 members including shuyukh including imams in the west 
as well as uh, academics, university, Islamic studies. Everyone on that list was supposed to be a Muslim. And then one person on that list, we could tell from you know the kinds of things he would say that he had some problems in terms of his iman. He announced that actually, you know, after long uh, consideration and soul searching, I have decided to become Christian. And, you know, it's actually an interesting story. I was really doubting Islam. And then that morning I went to the grocery store and for some reason my eyes saw a Christmas cookie. Really, this is what he said. My eyes fell on a Christmas cookie and I decided, oh, this must be a sign from Jesus. And I'm, I decided to become a Christian. And this is someone who's supposed to be educated, PhD in a Ivy League university. And for this reason, he decided to become a Christian. And he had the audacity to announce his ridda, his departure and apostasy from Islam on such a group of Muslims. And I expected people to condemn him or to say at least to express some kind of disappointment or maybe even sorrow, uh, if not anger. Instead, you, I, other Muslims on that group were congratulating him and saying, Mabruk, you have you know, found what makes you happy, what is going to really uh, fulfill you. As a person, congratulations, we're so glad that you found what found your calling. This is the level. And what is wor- what what made it so much worse is that there were many American imams and shuyukh on this list. But they were silent. They were silent. They didn't speak up and say, actually, this is wrong. Actually, this is a major crime. If you don't repent, your place is going to be in the hellfire. None of that was said. None of that was said. So this is the shocking level of disregard for iman. Basic iman. Okay, just belief in Allah and his final messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Belief in the angels, the books, the messengers, the Yawm al-Akhir and the Qadr of Allah. These are the pillars of Iman that every Muslim must believe in order to be a Muslim. And another trend that we see is this opposition to takfir. And people have gotten into their heads because of a very uh, deliberate propaganda campaign that takfir is something that should never be done. This is false. Takfir can be misused, and it is misused by some, where on the, on the basis of something that is ikhtilaf, there's a legitimate difference of opinion, they quickly declare takfir. You're no longer a Muslim. But the other side takes it so far to the extent, you know, we can use a technical term of irja, but they take it so far that if you ask them, well, this person is a Christian, can you make takfir of a Christian? They say, no, we don't know what is in his heart. But he's a Christian. 
We don't know what, what's in his heart. Or this person is an atheist. No, we can't say what is in his heart. There are groups like the Qadianis, for example. The Qadianis are those who say that there is this uh, Messiah who came, the true final prophet, Mirza Ahmed, Ghulam, whatever his name is. Uh, can we make takfir of them? No, no, you can't make takfir. Why not? They're clearly not Muslim. They re- reject the finality of prophethood. Say, no, we can't, we can't make takfir. So where did this idea come from? That you cannot make takfir, you cannot declare that, okay, this is clear, you're clearly not Muslim. You're rejecting what is necessarily known of Islam. You're rejecting something like the Quran, the finality of the prophethood of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We still cannot say that you're that such a person is not Muslim. Say no. This is if you do so, you're a takfiri. You're a takfiri, you're basically like Daesh. So this is extremely dangerous. What is the source of this idea that you can never make takfir? And it actually began in the colonial period. It began in the colonial period, specifically with the invasion of the French into Egypt. And what the colonizers wanted to do is to rule over the Muslims, obviously. But they knew that the Muslims do not let non-Muslims rule over them. Muslims do not allow the kuffar to rule over them. This, they will fight jihad to defend their lands from non-Muslims. So the French had this brilliant idea. Napoleon, Bonaparte specifically, he said, okay, we're Muslim actually. Napoleon claimed that he was a Muslim. So you should have no problem with us ruling over you. And he actually was able to control the certain class of ulama in Egypt to give fatwa that you cannot make takfir of someone who says that he is a Muslim. And furthermore, if the French specifically, they do not have to stop drinking alcohol, they can be Muslim and not stop drinking alcohol, and they don't have to get circumcised. And you cannot question their Islam. This is, this is the history. This is from the late 19th century early 19th century so this the idea is that we have to the colonizer recognize we have to actually abolish this concept of takfir if we want to control the muslims and part of it part of it is that you are going to be able to uh, infiltrate the muslim community you can send agents you can send people who are going to preach the most outrageous kufr have them infiltrate the community and they'll be protected because if they say that you are not a Muslim, that makes them a takfiri and therefore they're a fundamentalist or a radical terrorist and then we can prosecute them, we can detain them, we can imprison them just because they are calling out the agents, calling out the infiltrators. So this becomes a the lack of ability to distinguish the Muslim from the non-Muslim is a threat to the ummah. It's a threat to the uh, cohesion of the ummah because you have 
the enemies of Islam can infiltrate and spread all kinds of false doctrines while claiming to be Muslim and while claiming that this is Islam. So when any kind of community that you have, if you have, a, you know, for example, medical professionals, there are standards for what makes you a medical professional, like a medical doctor, and what, who is a medical doctor, who is not a medical doctor. Lawyers also, they have certain certification. Who is a certified attorney, a certified psychologist or counselor, and who isn't? Every community, in order to maintain the cohesion and the effectiveness of that group or class, has to have clear, objective standards to determine who is within and who is without. That's the only way that you can preserve the group. If you take away completely the concept of takfir, then you are threatening the ummah as a group. So we have to recognize this is a very important concept. And when you explain this to people, that same colonial propaganda rears its head. It says, oh, you're, you are advocating takfir. That means you are an extremist. That means you want to just kick people out of Islam. Don't you know how serious it is to declare someone a non-Muslim? The Prophet said in a hadith that if one declares another to be a non-Muslim, then one of them is definitely a non-Muslim. One of them is definitely a kafir. That means if you're wrong, you have declared someone a non-Muslim, and you're wrong about that, you've just said that out of anger, or you've said that out of jealousy or ignorance, Beware, because then it will apply to you. This is one interpretation of that hadith. So on this basis, they say we can never make takfir. But this is false. This is false, and no one accepted this. This is why in Islam we have such the idea of the pillars of iman that everyone agrees with. We have different aqaid, aqidah tahawiyah, for example, which all of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah accepts. What is the purpose of having those standards? Is to make clear who is a Muslim and who is not a Muslim. This is something that's very important. And that doesn't mean that we take it to the other extreme either. We have to be balanced, but we cannot give up the concept of takfir. So what is this project of interfaith? When we look at interfaith, it has been an effort from the beginning of the colonial period. The way to weaken the Muslim ummah is to weaken Muslim identity. Make Muslims confused about who are Muslims and who are non-Muslims. Without a identity, a clear identity, you will weaken Muslims because they are less willing to stand together. They're less willing to work together against enemies. This is how you can divide and conquer. Attack the Muslim identity. And the way that you can do this is, one, getting rid of the concept of takfir. Number two, giving this idea that all religions are essentially the same. There's nothing unique about Islam. Whether you are Muslim, Christian, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, or atheist, it doesn't matter as long as you're a good person. As long as you're a good person, and how do they define what is a good person? 
That's the question. But it ultimately boils down to being a good person means being a liberal person. Being a liberal person and prioritizing freedom and equality and these and democracy and liberal values. That's what it means to be a good person. And the funny example of this is that if you go to some of these liberal uh, Muslims, so-called Muslims, and you ask them, okay, well, this uh, non-Muslim died. What's the person, you know, theoretically, what is the status of this person, the akhirah, who dies as a non-Muslim? They say, well, as long as he's a good person, then Allah can forgive him, even if he doesn't, if he's not actually a Muslim. Okay, well, what about this, you know, cartoonist who insulted the Prophet Well, as long as he's a good person, as long as he, you know, didn't cheat and steal and he was, you know, a good person. Okay, then what, what is the status of this Trump supporter in the Akhirah? Oh, he's going to hell. He supported Trump? Okay, yeah. Racists go to hell. Racists, bigots, misogynists, they, they go to hell. Okay, so certain beliefs do matter then to you. Certain beliefs, your definition of what it means to be good means... Good means a liberal person. As long as you have these liberal values, you have these, these liberal uh, principles, then you're safe and you're saved. But if you don't, then you're going to end up in the fire. This is, this is their aqidah. Yet they call themselves Muslim. So the interfaith project began in the colonial period. And it is this idea of blurring the lines between kufr and iman and also blurring the lines between different religions and the whole idea of interfaith um, the big interfaith project now that has hit all the headlines is what's called the abrahamic faith the abrahamic faith that is being promoted in some countries in the middle east and they want to promote this idea that, okay, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, we all believe in the prophet Abraham. Therefore, we're the Abrahamic faiths. We need to see each other as all believers. We're all believers in God, and we're believers in Abraham. Therefore, we are one group, and we need to worship together, and they're building actual complexes that have both uh, church mosque and synagogue so-called in one complex and we need to just uh, have tolerance they say in Arabic the tolerance of each other and this is a new Abrahamic faith this is how we can fight extremism this is how we can fight intolerance and terrorism and the core idea of this is that each religion has to strip away all Anything that contradicts liberalism, any kind of uh, idea, value, principle, or practice that contradicts liberalism, get rid of that. Get rid of that from Christianity. Get rid of that from Judaism. Get rid of that from Islam. Then you're all good liberal citizens and you can get together and share, you know, holidays, you can have Eid together or Christmas together, you can celebrate, you can enjoy each other's company as tolerant citizens of one unified religion. So this is clearly an attack on Islam, attack on the Ummah. So the question is, 
what is the source of this kind of mentality? Obviously, there is a colonial source, but that's a source of certain ideas. But why do we find certain Muslims falling for this? Why is it so difficult for some of our youth to understand the importance of belief? Why is it such a shubha or doubt for some Muslims to say that, okay, if you are not a Muslim, then this is something that puts you uh, on a path or trajectory to the hellfire? Why do some Muslims have trouble understanding this? And the reason is actually a combination of factors. There's obviously the media propaganda, the brainwashing, uh, taking away the concept of takfir, presenting all religions as if they're basically the same thing, which they're not. You know, do we actually know the beliefs of Hinduism? and what their beliefs actually are, and what their practices actually are. For example, if you look at the Hindu tradition, a lot of the Hindu tradition involves idol worship, obviously, but even demonic worship is a part of Hindu religion. Worshipping demons, worshipping genitalia. And this was actually a funny case that happened in the United States. Um, there was this traffic barrier that was placed by the local municipality. A traffic barrier, it was this dome shape, big concrete that they placed in the middle of, at, at the end of a street. And this kind of dome shape was similar to a certain kind of private part. Um, and in Hinduism, this is called the shivling. And they believe that this is... This is something that has to be worshipped. This is a icon of the private part of one of their gods. So what happened in Los Angeles with this, the city is putting this concrete object, phallic shape, and Hindus start worshipping it in the middle of the street. And they, you know, the city, the police are driving by and they're seeing a big group, you know, in this random intersection. They're like, What's going on here? So, oh, we're just, you know, worshiping this. It's This is just concrete. Like, they're pouring, like, milk over it and honey and, you know, prostrating. Now, this is their religion, you know? So, Hinduism, I mean, all these religions, if you look at their books and look at their actual traditions, their actual beliefs, and take it seriously... You see that they're very different than Islam in their structure, in terms of their scripture, the preservation of their scripture, their idea of God. Major, major differences. But all of these things have been whitewashed. All of these things have been whitewashed and liberalized. They have uh, changed their religion so much to make it whitewashed and acceptable to modern liberal people. So when you do that, when you strip the religion of all of these practices and beliefs and uh, scripture, then they all start resembling each other. And that's why people, when they don't know the actual differences between these different religions, they think, well, what's really the difference between being a Hindu and being a Christian or being a Jew and being a Muslim? It's pretty much all the same thing. It's all the same. So why should God 
judge and say, oh, based on your Hindu beliefs, you're going to be punished. Based on your Jewish beliefs, you're going to be punished. Based on your Islamic beliefs, you're going to be rewarded. That seems unjust. If all the religions are the same, that's unjust for Allah to distinguish, for God to distinguish when everything, everyone is basically the same. The, the source of this kind of mentality or this conclusion is an ignorance about what these religions actually teach, what these religions actually are. So this is, this is one way that we can fight against uh, this kind of interfaith kufr, this interfaith uh, blurring of the lines, is we need to have specialists, not everyone, but specialists who will actually study these religions and present, you know, the, what is the actual religion beyond the whitewashing? What does Hinduism actually teach? What does Buddhism actually teach? What have these Christians actually taught throughout their 2,000 years of history? And when that comparison is actually done, then we don't have anything to worry about as Muslims because Islam is so clearly the truth. Islam is so clearly superior to these different ideologies and religions and ways of life. And uh, in, in my work, this is part of what I do. I work with researchers, with my team, and we study these books and we bring out our findings. Okay, this is, uh, look at what's in this, uh, in, in the Vedas. What's in the, you know, the teachings of Martin Luther and Christianity? What is in the teachings of the Talmud, for example? We bring out these points of difference. And sometimes people are shocked at what the books of other religions are all about. What's interesting about the attack on Islam uh, by liberalism, by Zionists, by Christian missionaries is that they have gone through the Quran with a fine-tooth comb. They've gone through hadith, the books of hadith. Some of these Christian missionaries have know the hadith better than some Muslims because they're just going and reading hadith after hadith after hadith. Or they're going now, they're actually graduating to going through the books of fiqh, going through the books of tafsir. And you know that the Zionists have actually trained, they actually train Zionists in the Arabic language so that they can go and access these books. And they've created propaganda channels, like have you heard of the channel Memory? Memory, where they... These are Zionists. If a uh, sheikh in the Arab world or in the West says something that is contrary to liberal sensibilities, like, oh, there's a certain hadith about what will happen to Yahud on, you know, Akhir Zaman, they're going to take that clip and they're going to translate it into English and they're going to distribute. Look how barbaric the Muslims are. Look how barbaric Islam is because it contradicts liberalism, for example. So they have, they're, they've done that research. They've done that work in order to undermine and attack Islam. Where's our effort? Where's our effort to, okay, you want to read our books? Let's read your books. Let's see what you're teaching in your books in the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Vedas or your books of law. How about we... Do that kind of research, and then we'll bring that all out and judge. 
Which religion is more rational? Which religion is more moral? So this is an effort that needs to take place with, by specialists. And this will counteract the liberalization effort, the interfaith effort, to a very great extent. So the last concept that I just want to share with you, this has to do with psychology. And this is something that has been studied by psychologists and cognitive scientists. Um, they say that human morality, like our sense of right and wrong, uh, is, has certain components. Human morality and the way that people think about what is right and wrong, there are certain universal features that every human being has in terms of our sense of morality. You know, humans are human beings. We have a nature, we have a fitrah. So, for example, if I go and slap a person just out of the blue, I just slap him, he's going to get angry. He'll feel like he is, he's been violated. He, this is an unjust action to go and slap someone unprovoked. This is something universal. Or another kind of universal uh, emotion or reaction that people have. If there's something disgusting that you see, like if you see rotten flesh or rotten meat or there's a rotten smell, there's a universal reaction. All humans are disgusted by that. All humans like pure things, clean things. Water, the, the purifying effect of water. All human beings share this instinct. It's something that is in our nature. Or you could say the fitra. So psychology has actually studied some of these things. And they have boiled down, according to one major theory, they've boiled down human morality into five components. They say when we look at all cultures, there are five broad components of morality. And they call it the five moral foundations. So let's see if you can remember these. The first foundation is about fairness. Fairness and equality. A lot of our moral intuitions and our instincts have to do with what's fair. If you have two children and you give one child some candy, then the other child is going to feel that this is unfair unless you give him the candy as well. Why aren't you giving me candy like you gave to my brother or my sister? The child feels that sense of fairness. So this is the fairness foundation of morality. It's found in Islam, obviously. It's found in many moral systems. The second foundation is care and harm. You shouldn't harm people for no reason. You should care people, treat people kindly, pe treat people mercifully. That's the second foundation. The third foundation is purity. Humans like things that are pure, and they're disgusted by things that are disgusting. The fourth moral foundation is very interesting. It's called in-group, out-group. People tend to prefer people who are in their group. And they are opposed to people who are considered in the out-group. What does this mean? So if you look at the way that human societies will gather around nationality or gather around ethnicity or gather around race, we're whites and they're blacks. We have to stick together. We have to prefer each other and fight against the opposite group. Or we are Pakistani and they are Indian or they are Bangladeshi. We have to stick with our group 
and fight against the other group. This is also something that is universal. And it's something that's found in Islam as well. Does anyone know the concept? Exactly. Al-wala wal-bara. Loyalty, being loyalty to having loyalty for Muslims and making bara, having this kind of disassociation from non-Muslims. This is a very, very important part of Islam. This is something that also has been attacked for the same reason that takfir is, is being attacked, to, to blur the lines between Muslims and non-Muslims, to weaken and water down the Muslim community and the ummah. Don't, tell, don't teach your children to have this kind of affinity and closeness. and prior, The way to, that I put it is having an ummah first mentality. We care about the ummah first. We prioritize the ummah, the Muslim, our Muslim brothers and sisters first. That doesn't mean we don't care about anyone else, but we put the ummah first. This is an important, critical part of Islam. But this is, this is part of human nature, the in-group, out-group. If you are dividing yourself on the basis of race, or the basis of ethnicity, or on the basis of skin color, this is un-Islamic, this is asabiyah, ta'asub. That you prefer someone on the basis of, oh, I have the same nationality as him, I have the same skin color as him, instead of prioritizing your Muslim brothers and sisters on the basis of shared iman. So this is the fourth foundation. And then the fifth foundation is respect for authority. In all cultures and religions, there is this idea of respect for authority, and there are certain actions that are associated with that. Uh, for example, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, uh, noted that all people, when they are looking for help, and they're desperate, and they want to ask God for help, ask Allah for help, they raise their hands. They raise their hands. This is something that is universal. And Shaykh al-Islam tied that to the fitrah. That this is something that is in human nature. Because there is this sense of authority that only God can help. Only Allah can provide. Another sign or another uh, manifestation of this respect for authority is bowing. So in many Asian cultures... They bow when they want to respect others. This is something that's universal. Muslims, we do rukur, we do sujood to Allah. That is our recognition and our understanding, submission to Allah as our Lord, our Rabb, and our Master. So this is the fifth moral foundation. So, okay, so can you remember what they are? Fairness, care, Purity, in-group, out-group, respect for authority. Okay, mashallah. So now this is the interesting part. Now that you know these five, the interesting part is because of liberalism and liberal indoctrination, they only emphasize two of these things. Which two do they really emphasize in liberal culture? Fairness and care. Exactly. Okay, mashallah, you guys know. So when you emphasize these aspects of morality, it's like a muscle. 
If you're only working out certain muscles, they get strong, and the muscles that you don't work out, they get weak. So if you're constantly emphasizing fairness, okay, treat everyone equally, be tolerant. Uh, you're constantly emphasizing care, be kind to others, treat others nicely, don't harm others. These are the only things that you're emphasizing, and you're ignoring these other aspects of morality. What's going to happen? Those other aspects of morality are not going to seem as relevant. You're not going to think in those terms. You're not going to have that same moral sense. This creates a huge imbalance. This causes a psychological imbalance. And people who have been affected by liberalism, they're living in liberal countries, they've been indoctrinated by a liberal educational system, their sense of morality is skewed and imbalanced. And unfortunately, this also affects many Muslims. When, but look at the, th the three things that have been uh, de-emphasized. Okay, fairness and care. What we see in, this is the effect of liberalization on Islamic education. You see that in the Islamic schools, in some Islamic schools or some masajid or these compassionate imams, when they talk about Islam, they emphasize all of the hadith that have to do with fairness. They emphasize all the hadith that have to do with equality. They emphasize all the hadith or the ayat of the Quran that have to do with caring for others and being merciful and having compassion and rahmah and treating you know, everything well treating animals well, treating human beings well, all of these hadith. They mention, for example, parts of the seerah that the prophet, you know, after Ta'if, the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when the angels came and they said, we can crush these people between the two mountains, the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, no. This is showing care. This is showing the care of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the rahmah of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They emphasize these things. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, but it's imbalanced because they don't emphasize the other aspects of Islam that have to do, for example, with al-wala wal-bara, a concept that, unfortunately, many of our youth, they have no understanding of what this is, right? Or authority, submitting to Allah for what reason? Because he's Allah, because he is the most high, because he is the most great, the most powerful, Instead of emphasizing the might, al-Jabbar, al-Qahar, these, these names of Allah, the one who overpowers, al-Mutakabbir, the one who is above all. Instead of these attributes of Allah, they emphasize, oh, al-Wadud, al-Wahhab, al-Rahman, al-Rahim. These, they're emphasizing these aspects. Why is that? Do you think this is a coincidence? No, it matches this psychology. Or even purity, you know, certain behaviors are impure. For example, uh, homosexual behaviors, for example. It, what is homosexuality based on? It's a certain action that involves a very dirty act. An impure, physically dirty act. Those things are not emphasized, those things are not as taught in this liberalized teaching of Islam. So this creates an imbalance. This creates a big psychological imbalance and that affects our understanding of other religions. It affects our evaluation of other people. If we were balanced, then it would be 
very morally wrong and offensive to us. We would feel that it's very morally offensive that someone rejects Allah, someone rejects their creator, someone turns their back on their creator, they refuse to submit. This is something highly objectionable. This is highly immoral. That sense of justice and right and wrong, that sense of the authority and power of Allah that is being violated by kufr, that has been weakened. That sense has been weakened because of liberalization. So do you see the imbalance, how this can affect our understanding of other religions and the the danger and the immorality, the injustice of kufr. So in my understanding and or my claim is that this is why we see less of a moral outrage at kufr or less of a moral imperative to be Muslim and accept Islam that we see within some parts of our community. So may Allah protect us from this and um, protect our children. I mean.